0: and social transformation. I'm very excited about today's show. It took almost half a year to actually, from the time I contacted my guest, to actually make this happen. But it's great for me to practice patience and perseverance. Uh, my guest today is Rob Fisher. Rob Fisher is a psychotherapist in private practice in Mill Valley, California, just north of San Francisco. And he also teaches in uh, graduate programs to train therapists. And he's also a consultant and also an author of a uh, book that um, coaches and guides therapists to be more effective in couples counseling. And we'll give out Rob's contact information toward the end of the show again, but just to put it out here, his website is www.robfisher. That's just F-I-S-H, so that's www.robfisher, mFt. M is in Mary, F is in Frank, T is in Tom. Dot .com so www.robfishermft.com so rob welcome to freeing the body freeing the soul thank you it's nice to be here great so i want to give the listeners a little background about my connection with hakomi and why for a long time i knew that i wanted to find somebody who'd be a great person to helped me to share Hakomi therapy with the world. So I was first exposed to Hakomi therapy back around 1976 when I was 20 years old and I was living in Venice, California. And I was invited one Saturday to a day-long workshop with a man named Ron Kurtz. Ron Kurtz uh, was really... um, quite a genius. He passed away a few years ago. Uh, He was a math genius and was interested in systems theory and Buddhism, and uh, over time developed a a form of therapy, which later toward the end of his life, he really didn't even like the term therapy and used the term assisted self-healing, but basically he had a model and a way of being, and a way of working with people that Uh, was a very elegant way of assisting people in bringing unconscious material up to the surface and having it heal and integrate in a very rapid, gentle, but powerful way. And I was just blown away by that Saturday when I was 20 years old. I I saw probably more profound healings per unit of time that day than I've probably ever seen before or since. And uh, I became a really big Ron Kurtz fan ever since then, and a really big fan of Hakomi. And I knew Hakomi was ahead of its time back there in 1976, but I felt confident that science and our culture would eventually catch up with Hakomi. And so I think now is the time and here we are. And so, uh, Rob is eminently qualified to uh, be here today and to share with the world about his journey and his journey into Hakomi and the role Hakomi is playing in his life and what Hakomi can do for other people and the future of Hakomi and all of that. So, Rob, welcome again. And um, what I like to do in these in-depth interviews is like for the first 20-25 minutes or so I really like to focus on the person and the person's journey in this case on your journey Rob so that by the time we start getting into more detail about the work uh, people are really connected with you kind of on on a limbic level there and it tends to make the impact of the show a lot more powerful so what I'm going to do in a minute is just turn it over to you for a while, and I'd love you to introduce yourself and tell your story and your journey, with a special emphasis on how you crossed paths with uh, Ron Kurtz and/or Hakomi therapy and the impact it's had in your life.
1: Okay, that sounds good, and I'm I'm noting that your involvement with Hakomi. Is- definitely predates mine. You've been involved with it much longer than
0: I have. Okay.
1: Well, okay. Hakomi, uh, for me, well, maybe I should, let me say just a little bit of what I'm up to now, and then I'll go back to a little bit of history. Um, right now I'm one of the directors of the Hakomi Institute of California and I teach at CII. Oh, I teach at JFK University. I have taught at CIS for many years. I'm not teaching a program there right now. I used to run the uh, Mindfulness and Compassion for Psychotherapists certificate program there and also teach in a couple of the graduate schools. And, uh, and I teach a lot internationally. I teach um, several times a year in China Ireland, I've taught in Moscow, next year we've got Macedonia, New Zealand, Australia, lots of China, Hong Kong, um, Canada. So I've devoted a lot of my life to Hakomi, and, and it continues to be interesting to me. And What interests me most about it is that I'm interested in living in a world where people are Slightly sane, at least, and loving towards each other. And I've seen with Hakomi the possibility of that happening. I've been a psychotherapist and licensed in California for many years. And I remember when I graduated from the Hakomi training in the early 90s, 91. I felt like the certificate I had on my wall from the training meant more to me in terms of my actual skill as a therapist than all the previous education I had, which was fairly considerable, um, because it, it really addressed my internal state who I am as an individual, how I am in relationships. And I'm certainly far from being perfect in relationships. I, I'm not beyond getting triggered by things. And a lot of the time I can act fairly elegantly, some of the times less elegantly. But I, over time, I think my ability to be open and engage with people's hearts and engage with their deepest Parts of their essential selves has increased. And a lot of that I owe to Hakomi and to the people around the Hakomi community. Um, it's a very gentle approach and that works well with my personality. And I think ultimately people find paths that fit with their personalities and their own visions. And it's we all tend to think we found the ultimate truth about things. And um, I think the real truth is more that we find ways of um, approaching therapy and healing that are congruent with our own personality. So this one's very congruent with mine. And I think it's congruent with a lot of people's, but a lot of it is that attracted me to it was its, um, kindness, its gentleness, its depth, and its, its dedication to working with live experience. So a lot of the therapeutic approaches I had learned prior to Hakomi were more interpretation driven or, um, behaviorally driven um, or organized specifically around um, emotional discharge. And Akomi's um, organized around the present moment, whatever it contains, and then welcoming it. I think Hakomi is uh, very much like a a happy golden retriever, um, that it welcomes you at the door and um, whatever state you happen to be in. And there's that sense of kind of invitation for who you are and all aspects of who you are that was very appealing to me. So I studied it, started studying it back in the '90s, and um, with Ron, who um, you mentioned, David, and we had a relationship of some depth. So we 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 stayed connected well for really for the rest of his life. and his ability to be open and loving and to see people really touched me. And, um, and also kind of the lack of kind of a sense of cultism around Hakomi also attracted me. Um, that there, uh, there was a lot of room for people to be individuals. Every Hakomi trainer is very different. And it's really a place where we can all be our unique selves and still be connected with the underlying principles and underlying techniques of the method. So, I studied it and I slowly became a teacher certified as a therapist and a teacher and then a trainer. And then I took it into the realm of couples therapy. Um, I had a lot of uh, experience in working with couples therapy and in teaching it and learned a lot from my own relationships. Um, where I repeated the same errors over and over again until bit by bit, I learned little pieces. Um, so I then wrote a book on basically, uh, how to work experientially with couples, but it's really based on Hakomi, um, Hakomi character theory, Hakomi techniques, um, and the underlying principles, um, of Hakomi as well. How does that apply to couples therapy? It's a very, I wrote it really for my graduate students, um, at the time, um, to have a book that was very practical. There was a lot of good theory books. Um, They tend to be abstract. I tried to write this one in a way that was accessible. So, you know, here's what you do, here's what you say, here's how you look, here are examples, here are clinical vignettes. So it was very practical. I speak at conferences a lot here, and... More recently, I've gotten very interested in teaching in China. Um, Hakomi has really um, been a vehicle uh, to that's very interesting to Chinese uh, culture because, in part, it's based on uh, Buddhist and Taoist principles, and so it's kind of interesting to people over there. I think that you know these traditions that originated in the East came over to the West, we kind of used them and applied them in different ways. And then uh, these applications then are are available um, to be taught back in China, which is just lovely. And the people are very receptive there. And so I teach a lot in China. And... there are lots of applications that are happening there in uh, in the corporate world, in the diplomatic world, taught in a number of embassies, um, both in China and Japan. Uh, Hakomi's brand of mindfulness, because Hakomi is very tied into mindfulness, that's another element that's appealed to me greatly, and of course, mindfulness has gotten very uh, prominent over the last twenty years. So, that's a little bit about where I stand in some of my relationship with Hakomi, but are there any more specific questions I can answer David well
0: i want to t- I want to take you much further back in your own journey and work your way back up more towards present time before we get into more details about Hakomi. Is that okay with you? Absolutely, okay, so one of the things that struck me is how much teaching you're doing. And I was wondering if you had had fairly extensive teaching experience prior to Hakomi.
1: I did. uh, I started teaching in the psycho-spiritual realm back in the 70s. Um. I ran a non-profit for a spiritual teacher um, then, and uh, we did workshops here and in uh, Europe, and I also guided spiritual tours of India. My first degree was in India studies, which in my mind at least qualified me to take people over there, and um, so we would go over and visit any guru that would have us or any holy place that we could get to. And it was very exotic. It was because it was in the early 70s, and the West hadn't quite, um, since the British had left, the West hadn't been uh, involved with India so much. So uh, I enjoyed that a lot. That was further back. And so I taught there, and and then I taught at universities, um, mostly around the Bay Area. But a lot of my teaching really has been through the Hakomi Institute over the last now about a quarter of a century.
0: How old are you now? I am
1: sixty-five.
0: Okay. So you're like five, five and a half years older or so than than I am. So you uh, you were really right you were like a middle-aged boomer. Yes. Yeah.
1: Okay. I well, was a hippie. I came from the right. hippie generation. Right.
0: Where did you grow up?
1: I grew up in New York City, um, which was not an ideal location for me. I would have liked to have grown up in Maine, but uh, as luck would have it, I grew up in New York.
0: Were either of your parents uh, consciously on a growth or a spiritual path? They were not.
1: I would say I think my mother was unconsciously on a spiritual path mm-hmm. and resonated a lot with anything that that involved the spirit, mm-hmm. um, but nothing formal. Um, they were both uh, refugees from World War II, and their connection with the spiritual world had been damaged. I would say.
0: Did they ever? Um, did they ever show an interest in wanting to do any type of work that might? help them to heal from some of those World War II traumas, or was that just a place that they didn't want to go or they didn't even know they could go there?
1: I know my father was in psychoanalysis at a certain point, but I'm not sure what he was working on then because yeah. I was pretty young. Um, but, you know, the idea of psychology was uh, was a familiar one. And yeah. I remember my great uncle actually had – his girlfriend at one point was a um, like a, uh, a godchild of uh, Freud's in Vienna, okay. and um, he they had gone together to to uh, talk to Sigmund about certain issues in their relationship, and so I grew up on you know you know kind of with psychology being an interesting element and very kind of acceptable and. The medical field, a lot of doctors in the family, and so that that was uh, part of the culture in which I grew up.
0: Were you raised in kind of a agnostic type of environment, or was there a particular religious path that was pervasive in your house?
1: It was definitely agnostic, and uh, um, although I went to Fielson Ethical Culture School, which is Reformed, 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 Reformed Judaism, and. that was incorporated into the curriculum of the school. Like every, class, every week we had to go to the dreaded ethics classes um, and discuss ethical dilemmas. And um, it was one of the classes I would always wish I could avoid. But I probably learned something from that. And my parents also were kind of interested in Quakerism. And it was East Coast Quakerism, so that was... Um, you know, oriented around people sitting in a circle silently and anybody who was inspired by anything where they got connected to the divine could say so. So it's a very non-hierarchical model of religion. And I like this idea of sitting together with people in silence. I still really like
0: it. Okay. And so were you, uh, were you an only child? Were you a firstborn? Did you have brothers and sisters? I have an
1: older brother, eight years older than I, um, who has totally independent of me and my interest in mindfulness, has developed a mindfulness approach to mediation and teaches, has taught for years. He's now retired, but has taught for years in a law school in uh, Australia. Um, so he's has similar interests uh, uh, as mine, but it's interesting also that we kind of developed them very separately.
0: I get the feeling that uh, even though it might never have been um spoken in this way that there was a from an early age there was a high value placed on peace and service
1: yeah yeah, I think service definitely certainly the Quakerism piece is very service oriented and the path of service uh for me it seems very important like i I was just reading in uh, the Prophet Khalil Gibran, the Prophet, which I have a copy from my teenage years. Uh, I was just opened it a couple of days ago and went to the section of, about work. And, and Gibran says, work is love made visible, and, uh, which I think is just a great thing to say. And uh, you know, service work is a way of, of loving people. And for me, it has to do with creating an environment where people feel loved um and feel more capable of embodying who they are at the deepest level their own uniqueness and so that's really my dedication that's what interests me more than anything else whatever discipline it is whether it's i think a, i think anything that promotes that any physical environment that promotes it or a person that promotes that then is of interest to me
0: who were some of your early um spiritual influences or mentors?
1: Well, certainly Quakerism was, uh, because I liked sitting, I went to a summer camp, a Quaker summer camp. So we'd sit in the woods in these silent circles. And when I got to teenage years, I started really liking that. Just the idea of sitting silently in the woods with a group of people just seemed like one of the better things to do. Um, so that influenced me a lot. And then when I went to college, I got my degree in India studies. and It was basically philosophical Hinduism, like the underlying philosophy of Hinduism, which um, hasn't become so popular here, but kind of found its way into our culture here more through Buddhism, because Hinduism influenced Buddhism. But I studied that a lot um, in a more intellectual way. And I remember when I lived in India, I went to school in India for a while. I, uh, there were very few Westerners there, but I, I knew one guy who was a devotee of Muktananda's. And he told me, I, I, I really wanted to meet a guru, I, I, you know, any kind of guru. Like, it would be really interesting. And so this guy had a guru. And uh, we went we took went on this little bus to a little town where Muktananda was speaking and, um, and met with him. And, you know, got to kind of hang out with him a little bit. Um, And I was very impressed. I was impressed by how devoted people were. I'd never seen devotion before, you know, growing up in kind of intellectual uh, uh, New York culture. And it really, it touched me in some way. And then I I started reading and studying Hinduism, some of the Hindu saints like Ramakrishna, you know, who had this kind of wild life that really appealed to me where he would find ways of worshiping the sacred, like all these different ways. Um, and he wasn't bound by any kind of tradition. You know, he would find out about Radha worshiping Krishna. Um, and he would then he went to live in a harem, this Maharaja's harem. And the Maharaja fell in love with him. He dressed in a sari and these wild stories. But the, the the adventurousness of it appealed to me, but also this dedication to finding some expression of the divine in life. And that's really that that has continued to influence me. Um sometimes I'll I travel a lot, I, I was traveling somewhere in the east within somewhere sometime within the last year. And I I had this unusual experience of being in zone one on boarding the airplane. I'm never in zone one. I'm always in zone four or five or 500, you know, the last seats. But I was in zone one. And so I was in the airplane and I got all settled and people were coming in. And I was in a really open state, um, which often happens when I'm teaching over there. I was just so open and watching people come in and seeing both their their suffering and their wonderfulness, and so I was watching them and I was like starting to grin like wider and wider until I like got this big grin on my face. And everybody would come in, I'd like look at them and I'd make contact them from this kind of like you know really open place. And it was like watching all the flavors of the divine pass by me. Um, and of course, you know, you start a cycle of generosity you know, I'd do that. I'd grin at them, they'd grin back at me, um, you know, and uh, it, uh, it feeds on itself in a positive way. So I think those are some of the influences. Um, I really, my favorite places to be in the world are Tibetan temples. Um, I just love being in their ambience, and I've traveled around the world a lot, and wherever I go, I go to um, temples and mosques, um, and stone stone circles and depends where I am but I always seek out those places and those are really my favorite places to spend time Um, and it doesn't, the the actual religion is not as important to me as the sense of devotion and kind of like a portal to something that is greater than our normal uh, everyday experience so I had a lot of influences there. At, At one point I studied sitar making. Okay. Part of my degree, um, my India studies degree, I had an independent study, and what I decided to do, this was the early 70s, I was going to learn how to make sitar, so I was an apprentice. And I went to a little town in southern Maharashtra, and I had an introduction to a man who made sitars, um- Umar Saheb, sitar maker, And he agreed to teach me how to do this. I'd made music instruments before here in the U.S. And so it turned out, though, that the other sitar makers in town were worried that I was going to steal their exports. And they were also worried that I was not Islamic. And... All the sitar makers in this town, and probably throughout India, are Islamic. A lot of craftspeople are. So they, Umar Saheb and the guild made an agreement. He happened to be head of a guild, which was lucky for me. They made an agreement, and the agreement was that I would not uh, ever make the sitar outside of India, which I have agreed to. And the other is that every Thursday night, I would go to the local uh, mosque, um, and... Uh, perform the ritual ablutions and um, pray and then I would go to my Islam teacher and so I got uh, Islamic training at that time and I I think it was probably in Marathi so a lot of it passed by me some of it was in English I I could speak Marathi as a five-year-old can but um, that was another really interesting influence. So I've been kind of very ecumenical um, you know from the Judaic to the Christian to the Hindu uh, Islamic, uh, Buddhist um, Quaker so it's all, all over the map and I continue to be very very um, ecumenical about it. One place I love when I taught in Russia is going to Russian Orthodox churches There's just incredible devotional aesthetic um, there It's just wonderful to be in.
0: It's beautiful. And so uh, when you came back from India, how old were you?
1: I came back, well, I was still in my 20s then. So I was guiding tours in my early 20s. So I think maybe the last one I got, I was 23. And if you are wondering if I knew what I was doing guiding the tours, the answer would be no. But they were a lot of fun.
0: So then what moved you to go back into formal educational a formal educational environment to end up getting your MFT and your three thousand hours and how did that all come about I was always interested
1: in what was going on with people internally and I remember actually in and when I was there uh, studying in India me and my friend John would sit at has gone on to become the chairman of a very large multinational corporation. We'd sit at the table and we would analyze people. And, you know, and nobody, finally, the other people caught us doing this and they were really pissed off at us. But I remember this interest I had. It wasn't really meant to be critical, but um, I was very interested in it. And so I wanted to study psychology, but the way it was taught in my college was more behaviorism and, i was not so much interested in the psychology of rats um, as uh, as i am and human beings and so i went through different professional iterations and at one point i found myself in la as a founder and and uh, on the board of a uh, a second cable network in the united states which was a financial uh news network so second uh, espn was first and we were second and we raised a lot of money, and we put together affiliates across the country. We broadcast twelve hours a day of business and financial news. And I had actually gotten into that position uh, because I was helping a company uh, that had a very visionary approach to media. They wanted to produce and distribute uh, children's program, enlightened children's programming, basically. And um, so we were trying to. F- they had already shot a lot of programming, but had no distribution, and. I, um, in the course of trying to figure out what to do, we realized there was not a market at that time, uh, for the children's programming, but there was a market for financial news. And so we built this network and while I was there, I still had the hankering for psychology and started going to grad school. And so by the time we were taken over by the bad guys, uh, I had my degree and then, uh, did my internship and then went on to practice. And so now a lot of my time is spent training people. I have a lot of training groups uh, for people, and, um, and I teach a lot. But I keep uh, private practice going to keep me honest and humble, because um, it's easy to lose that um, if you're just teaching.
0: Okay, so let's bring the conversation, the story, up to the point where you Tell us a story about how you either discovered Ron Kurtz or how you discovered Hakomi.
1: A friend of mine was uh, core faculty at CIIS in San Francisco, California Institute of Interior Studies. And he said, You know, I think you'd really like this Hakomi thing. And I trusted his judgment. And so I checked it out and I ended up watching a videotape of a Hakomi session. And I saw that and I thought, this is exactly how I want to be doing therapy. <laughs> and, and I can't, I don't know how to do it, but this is exactly what I want. This is a sense of journey into, this deep journey into experience that's so cool. And, um, and so I took the training. And I, I think I was a remedial student. Uh, it, was not a, it was not something I could do well, particularly because I had so much background, more... In interpretation and then following the context of, of what people say it did not come naturally to me at all teaching has always come very naturally to me but Comey uh, did not so I struggled with it for years but I got I was very dedicated I got better and better now I'm fairly good
0: um, so is Ron, your teacher or did you have another main teacher
1: yeah Ron was Ron and uh, Richard Heckler is still around um, were the two teachers in the training, uh, and then um, over time, I took other trainings. There, you know, there are character trainings and other. Uh, now there are many other trainings that we offer that are specialty trainings, like on attachment and and uh, trauma and couples therapy and touch and different kinds of things. But I took a bunch of trainings and then eventually found myself on the teacher track. Uh, But mostly, you know, I had a a good relationship with Ron throughout his life and saw him last just a couple of weeks before he died. We invited him down to teach at uh, CIS for a special event there. And um, so he's been a major figure in my life. And, you know, I feel like his ability to be loving has somehow uh, influenced me a lot and kind of opening that up in me as well.
0: Right. So how old were you when you crossed paths with Hakomi? I was around, I was 41. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. Well, uh, and I take it along the way, you you did you get married?
1: I did get married. I had uh, already been married for 10 years by the time I found Hakomi okay got married had a kid
0: all right well let's shift gears i think this whatever this half, last half hour or so i think was well spent in terms of giving me and the listeners a chance to get to know you a little better and to put the rest of the conversation into context so if it's alright with you i'd like to shift gears now and and have the rest of the conversation be more directly about Hakomi. Is that all right? That's
1: great. And I, I, it was also fun to talk about some of these things. I certainly, yeah. a lot of them I've never talked about in, in public venues. <laughs> so it's interesting to do that.
0: Well, you know, one of the things that makes Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul unique as a podcast is that we do in-depth interviews. And that's kind of becoming a lost art. And I've always appreciated a good in-depth interview. And I think Having the time to connect with the guest this way makes the rest of the conversation more powerful.
1: Yeah, Yeah, I think you're right.
0: So we're going to get right into it. We'll start right at the beginning. I like to start out with defining our terms, especially a word that people are unfamiliar with like Hakomi so let's just start at the very beginning with the question what is Hakomi therapy or some people might call it the Hakomi method and what makes it distinct from other approaches to healing and therapy?
1: Okay. Well there are lots of approaches to therapy in 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 the world. I think in the United States there's a study that recently said there are about 400 different modalities and Hakomi is one of them, and as much as I would like to say it is direct uh, transmission from God, I think it's 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 one of the good ones. Um, but there are lots of different ones um, that offer different kinds of approaches for different kinds of people. And what Hakomi offers in particular is um, a lot of attention to present time experience and to the organic unfolding of experience is very difficult to explain what happens in a hokomi session. But the basic idea is that you work with with the client's present time experience, whatever it is. It could be their gesture or their posture or the lump in their throat or the tightness in their shoulder or the pace at which they walk into the room. So you work with present time experience in in an attempt to find the core material that organizes their lives, like what are the beliefs and the models of the world, models of other people, models of ourselves that really organize how we approach life. So if you have a, for instance, if your model of the world is, I'm not safe, then, then you may strategically try to make yourself invisible. Um, and then people see that and they treat. You in a certain way, which often reinforces that model. So we're looking for those kinds of models, and there, there are models that are that are contracting models like that one. I'm not safe, but models that are expansive, so uh, um, that kind of help you kind of move out into the world. So we're, we're looking for both of those, and then we're going to kind of fan the embers of the ones that are expansive, and then we'll look at the ones that are, that, that help people contract to, with an attempt to get more freedom from them.
0: Could I, could I interrupt for a second? Yes. So when you talk about these models of reality and of who people are and what life is and who others are and who they are, uh, one of the things I want to bring out is the fact that uh, these models may have been constructed before the individual had what we would call everyday language. Yes. And so I wanted to make sure that the listener knows, otherwise they might think that the model is a cognitive model in that sense. And it could be, but I want to bring out the possibility that there can be these pre-verbal imprints on the soul, shall we say, that can be recovered through language, but, were not created in a cognitive uh, possibility.
1: Right, that's absolutely true. A lot of these models are, from a neuroscience point of view, are are stored in an implicit implicit memory, um, which is the kind of memory that you you don't access with words and and, um, you just kind of know it to be true. Like your car knows how to drive itself home seemingly without you having to remember anything and so it's a similar kind of thing we have experiences as infants and even in utero and maybe even in past lives um, where we develop certain patterns of of perceiving and feeling and behaving and you can't necessarily remember the incidents because a lot of them happen in the first year and a half and the the it's not until about two and a half years old when explicit memory develops, where you can actually come back and remember the stuff that happened. So, if you were a col- colicky baby, for instance, and um, you're you're crying, your mom picks you up, and you're kind of fighting her off because you feel so bad inside, and she gets discouraged, and then kind of pushes you away a little bit, or you can feel the tensing of her muscles. Um, and her holding her you away from her um, body, um, you're not going to remember that but your body remembers it and that's uh, one of the uh, homi's strengths, strengths is that it's use of the body and the body does remember and um, the implicit memory is actually there in your brain um, but it's different from cognitive, uh, more cognitive linear uh, narrative uh, memory. So we're trying to find, you can see those, you can see the symptoms of those, the outward symptoms of those core beliefs. Like I once had a client who was really tall, really big, tall guy. And when, after the first session, he kind of bent to go through my doorway and he turned around to shake my hand. And I remember thinking, "Uh oh, you know, this is going to be a bone crusher. And he shook my hand and it was one of these kind of handshakes where somebody grabs your fingers, you know, or they just let you grab their fingers and then it's kind of floppy. Here's this huge guy with this floppy handshake. And so that is an indicator of those core beliefs, how he shook hands, the strength and the power and the muscle tension with which he shook hands told a whole story about his relationship with power. And so we started exploring it, not as we were going out the door, but in future sessions uh, because basically what was happening with him is people were running over him in his life and he had a lot of trouble asserting himself. And um, so that you could see how his, his behavior was governed um, from this internal model of the world, which was I shouldn't use my power. I'm so big I shouldn't use my power.
0: It's interesting, as you're talking, it reminds me of, in a way, it sounds like uh, that one of the things that makes a good Hakomi therapist would be the same thing that would make a good classical homeopath, in the sense that you both have to be familiar enough with the normal course of something to be able to have a frame of reference so that Something that is curious to you, that's kind of idiosyncratic to that person, begins to show up on your radar in sharp relief, and then you're curious about that, and then you explore that.
1: Yes. We do a lot of tracking of nonverbal signals. Most of communication is nonverbal. Studies show that 70 to 80% of communication is nonverbal. And so we don't rely on words uh, more than 20%. So we track a lot how people do whatever they're doing and what their moment-to-moment experience is and how little signs of that, things like muscle tension and breathing and color, um, eye dilation, uh, pace, uh, gestures. So we take all that, the language of the body very seriously. And I mean, the people, you know, give therapists very sanitized versions of their lives, but you can't do that with your body. The body will reveal, like his handshake is not, was not something under, his conscious control was just a habit how, that evidenced this core material he had of how he approached the world. And so we do a lot of tracking of nonverbal. Um, and in our trainings, we teach a lot of that as well.
0: Yeah, I, I hear you. You know, I'm thinking about from my own perspective as a holistic doctor and as an ontological coach, almost always it's what people don't know they don't know. It's what they're blind to that is shaping and constraining their their current experience and current possibilities. And a lot of what I do is one way or another assist the process of helping to bring that which they're blind to conscious yes and it sounds like that's what you're doing in your own in your own way
1: yes that's right uh, and you know there's a saying the fish is the last to discover water right um and so we swim in this you know in this medium and we don't notice that we're doing it we don't notice that uh when we shake hands with somebody, we look away because it's a habit. And yet that helps, that sets up a relationship instantly. Um, so that, you're right, we, we don't notice these things. And one of the first steps is then noticing the signs of core material. And then we work with it, and we work with it in experiential ways that help it unfold. So one of the underlying principles in Hakomi is organicity, which is the idea that if you stay with present-time experience, in an environment that is loving and safe, then it will, there's a natural tendency for it to unfold and fold in a healing way. That we can rely on the, the, that, that intelligence in the unconscious to create healing experiences. So we not so much lead, but follow experience and encourage it to unfold like cheerleaders for the, cheerleaders for the essential self basically. So we let it unfold. And it's very magical. It's very different from the forms of therapy I've practiced that was more therapist's agenda-driven. It Um, sounds very
0: much um, to me like assisted inquiry.
1: Yeah. Well, you know what Ron you mentioned before what Ron used to call it uh, towards the end of his life was mindfulness-assisted self-study. And you help somebody stay in a mindful state, and and begin to study these core beliefs. And so, you know, maybe we would do an experiment in mindfulness with this guy, for instance, where he would shake my hand in his normal way and they shake my hand in a stronger way. And then we'd have him study whatever comes up in either approach. Um, I was working with somebody recently who, she gets overengaged in the world. And... When she talked about it, her neck and her head would come forward. And she'd say, I need to really pull back. And then she would actually pull her head back. And so we just worked with that movement, studying each part of it. Um, and this is not a matter of looking for pathology or something wrong with a person. Just looking at how they approach life. And what happens if you come forward a little bit? What happens when you come back a little bit? And is there a right place for you You know, in between? And so each, if you move your body a little bit one way or the other, you have a different experience. And then if you stay with that experience, it begins to transform in ways from the inside rather than trying to make transformation happen. So we don't push transformation. We invite experience. We honor whatever experience is there, and we allow it to unfold.
0: One of the things that really struck me as I studied Ron and his work was the... Because I considered him very much a compassionate Scientist was his orientation to experiments. Yeah, that that the work is very often a, a series of um, of intuitively guided experiments to set up to consciously set up a certain frame and then kind of throw a pebble into a pond within that frame that you're establishing and then to observe and be with the ripples in such a way that people would get unstuck or something that needed to happen would happen, or people could take in some nurturing that they hadn't been able to take in or something like that. But the whole orientation of sort of a, uh, a bold humility of, the therapist, of uh, a, a joint exploration. Yeah,
1: that's very well put. Uh, Ron used to use that example of uh, throwing a, like a little pebble into a pond and watching the ripples go out. And I like the term bold humility. I think that describes it well. Because we're really trying to follow the, the client. Um, and Hakomi, another principle in Hakomi is... Um, is engaging in a non-hierarchical relationship. And I believe that this is very strong in education as well as in psychotherapy or coaching too. Um, That even though I might know more about psychology than somebody, I have no special rights as a human being that is greater than theirs. And so we, we take great efforts to maintain... A non-hierarchical relationship where people are as um, that we want to honor who they are basically and not put ourselves above them in any way um, okay. just because I may know more about psychology doesn't mean that you, you know you may you know more about homeopathics or medicine you know, than I do for instance
0: okay. okay so how would you answer this question in the context of this conversation uh, what is hakomi work designed to do or accomplish or open up
1: i would say that it's designed to help people get in touch with their essential selves and embody that in their lives it's like it's kind of like finding the a river and then floating downstream on it um that you know, we learn to put who we are on hold or down in the basement, you know, because it somehow wasn't welcomed, or we were taught that boys don't cry, or girls don't get angry, or sexuality is not so good, or um, it's not you know don't threaten you know your brother by being more powerful. So we put different parts of ourselves on hold, and then we. We get disconnected from ourselves, and once you're disconnected from yourselves, it's very hard to get. Dis- it's hard to get connected with somebody else, or our relationships suffer. And so, Hakomi is really designed to help people find that deepest part of who they are. And if they, if there are models of life or themselves or other people that interfere, then to put our attention on those in ways that allow them to. Um, diminish their impact, and to have more freedom to be as who we actually are in connection with other people.
0: Do you prefer to do Hakomi work one-on-one, or do you like to have an assistant, or do you prefer to do Hakomi work in the context of uh, a group of people that are wanting to learn Hakomi? What, what do you like to do?
1: <laughs> it's a good question. There's <laughs> <It has laughs> lots of levels. Um, I I spent a lot of my time teaching Hakomi, and so, but a lot of the teaching is not. It's not uh, an academic teaching. There's certainly there's a lot of concepts that we teach in our trainings, but more than that, we teach the internal state of how to be. Uh, the kind of person where people want to open up the treasures of their unconscious to, and that that's more than therapy. It's really teaching life skills. So in the course of a training, then people become more and more open and more and more alive as individuals. And I love that. I love being there. It's like an oasis from the craziness of life outside, and. And then those people go out into the world, and they're more loving, and they're more open, and they're more accepting, and they're more able to tolerate diversity of experiences, and that's inspiring to me. So that's a lot in groups. I I I like doing individual therapy. I like doing couples therapy. Um. But I've taught in many different venues, and and more recently I've been teaching in some embassies in in Asia, and. You know, that's a completely different kind of venue from teaching um, academics or teaching people who are looking to learn counseling skills. But they're all, the idea that we can, that this can in some way contribute to a more compassionate, more mindful world is very appealing to me. So, and at this point, I'm thinking on kind of broader, broader and broader scales um, and how to influence culture and uh, you know, in that direction, and um, I'm actually working on some some new models that apply this material uh, in ways that could make it very accessible to larger groups of people.
0: What makes a great Hakomi therapist? A lot of heart
1: you know there are people you know in research studies on what causes people to change psychologically they all come out basically saying that technique is a distant third uh variable the most important variable is uh people's readiness to and motivation to change the second most important variable is the relationship and the third most important variable is technique So there are people, you know, I'm sure you and listeners have met people that you just feel like being open to this person because who they are. You know, there's just some feeling about them that they're accepting, they're warm, they're curious, they have the bandwidth to actually listen, um, they have a depth of understanding, and they can not only listen to your words, but they can feel you. They can connect with your experience rather than just your words. Um, So I think that ability to... Kind of be an embodiment of compassion and warmth and humor, um, and depth is what's what makes a home therapist a good therapist. It's not the techniques we've got plenty of techniques, um, but that's not the essence of it. I, I, I give you like a little example of it. I, I was driving home after teaching a training, and along a big street in Marin, and cars are kind of whizzing by, and I see a, beside the car at a certain point was a Upright piano sitting by the side of the road. It was covered, and I'm not one to pass by an orphaned piano, so I stopped my car and um, I walk back to the piano and uncover it. And with the cars whizzing by, I start playing it. And I compose music, and I'm not a great piano player, but I'm a fairly good composer. So I start playing the piano, and it's a nice piano. And I don't know what's doing out there by the side of Sir Francis Drake Boulevard, but I had an opportunity to play it. And pretty soon this woman comes out of her house. And she says, well, I sold the piano. And I said, oh, good. You know, I wasn't looking for a piano. I already have two. And and I noticed that between the time she came out and first started talking to me and when she finished the sentence about having sold it, that there was more moisture in her eyes. So, and that interested me. And I could feel that there was some depth of feeling there with her. And just as another human being, I wanted to connect with her on that level. And I know I couldn't be a therapist and I wasn't interested in being a therapist, but I wanted to be another human being in connection with her. And so I said, oh, there's, a panel meant something to you, huh? Or means something to you. And um, so I'm just connecting with her experience because I wanted to as a human being. And so she starts crying. And it's telling me the history of the piano and why she had to sell it. And there's a whole, there's a lot of tragedy around it. And, and then she finished and, and and she, her feelings kind of abated. And she said, well, you know, I know I've sold it, but these people haven't come to pick it up yet. And I want to just give it to you. (laughs) And I couldn't, I actually went home to see see, in measured walls to see if I could put another piano somewhere. But I really, I didn't need another piano, but that kind of, you know paying attention to people and um, and honoring their experience uh, is really I think what makes Hakomi what it is.
0: That's beautiful. How are Hakomi therapists trained or developed?
1: People take trainings um, which we they're all over the US, Canada, South America, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, now China, Japan. Um, I'm sure I'm forgetting big parts of the world. Uh, Ireland, Germany. Um, So there are trainings around, and San Francisco is the largest training unit. We have like the biggest concentration of teachers here through uh, our institute. And so people take trainings. There are nine months. Modules, there are two nine month modules for a comprehensive training where people do not have to have a uh, license to be in. And then there's a licensed track here for people who are interns or on a licensed track um, that we do here, which is a seven month level one. And then there's a level two in both of those um, to kind of go with more depth. And then there's a certification process uh, that's a very friendly process but quite exacting where we. Are, are making sure that, that people really have proficiency in each skill and more than that kind of embody some of the principles um, underneath in terms of their uh, internal state of being and um, so then people kind of progress along those tracks at their own speeds and there's no real academic requirement um, but there is demonstration of skills and internal state um, being So it's a very, it meant a lot to me to be certified in kōmi It meant a lot more than my professional license.
0: Now, you mentioned your own journey earlier. You said it was very challenging for you to to move through the spaces you needed to move through to become a certified kōmi therapist. Uh, I would imagine a big part of it, we were talking earlier about becoming conscious of the water you're swimming in. I would imagine a big part of becoming a good Hakomi therapist is becoming more aware of your own water.
1: Yes, absolutely. Like the, you're, That's the internal state work that's needed. And so when I work with people in groups.
0: Uh, Rob, I can't hear you right now. Um, I'm going to pause this. Can I don't know if you can hear me, but I can. Oh, okay, I can hear you again now. I was just about to pause it. Yeah. But you disappeared for about twenty seconds. So. No. So um, let's go no, back what? to my question about when I said um, I would imagine that a big part of becoming an excellent Hakomi therapist is becoming aware of your own water, and you had mentioned that that's the internal state work is. Was that the part of the work of becoming a certified Hakomi therapist that was challenging for you when you mentioned earlier that it was quite challenging?
1: I think what was challenging for me was getting out of my head. And I I found that people who are well-educated as therapists often face that also, as well as I grew up in an environment with, you know, with two Holocaust survivors, where life was not particularly safe, and so my own tendency to pull in uh, away from life, I think, impacted my internal state. And so, over the last quarter of a century, I've learned to not do that, you know, and to let myself um, engage in ways that I wasn't originally.
0: That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Um, Tell us a little more about your experience of your relationship with Ron Kurtz, the founder of Akomi Therapy, and about your experience of Ron and in a little more detail about what impact he's had on you and your work. I think the the fundamental
1: gift that Ron gave me was the... Um, modeling this kind of loving presence, and which I think is the essence of all of this, and so more, you know, he was a genius, you know, as a practitioner and as a technician, but more than that, just watching somebody be in this state of really being open and welcoming other people in this very deep way uh, touched me, and also his brilliance, you know, he was great to talk to about stuff because he was always up to some new idea and he's very exploratory and adventurous and, you know, he loved reading neuroscience and, um, and then trying to incorporate it. Like, how would you actually use it in, in therapy? Um, so kind of, and we wrote some stuff together. We actually wrote two thirds of a book that we've never published and somebody may now pick it up. I uh, ended up going writing some other stuff instead and publishing, but, um, mostly it was just the kind of a relationship where I oriented more and more as a result of our relationship towards being in the world in a way that embodies kindness and warmth um, and mindfulness and service orientation um, than I did previously. And that's gotten stronger and stronger. So when I teach now and, and, and in my personal life as much as possible, that's I'm interested in doing that. And I cannot say that that's a really a well popularized value in white middle-class Western culture, which is one of the reasons I like teaching in China so much.
0: I understand. Now, did Ron have a major physical plane spiritual teacher himself?
1: Um, he, I know he, there was a, uh, there are some teachers from eastern the Eastern philosophy world. There are some Hindu and some Buddhist teachers that he really liked. Um, I don't know that there was one that he kind of was a, a disciple of, um, but I think he was influenced by different people. He was influenced a lot by Taoism and by Buddhist um, ideas, which he incorporated into Hakomi. Um,
0: okay. So, uh, what's on the cutting edge for Hakomi these days, and What's on the cutting edge for you personally?
1: Well, um, I think for Kakomi, the cutting edge is really research studies and publishing that that we really need to do more. We we just come out with a couple of books um, that have been published. Um, uh, uh, One is uh, by W.W. Norton and then North Atlantic. just came out with one on body psychotherapy, which Hakomi has a big place, and there's another kind of textbook that Norton just came out with a few months ago. Um, So Hakomi, uh, we need to do more of that, because Hakomi has been ahead of the crowd for many years, and now the world is catching up because mindfulness is such a popular idea. And Hakomi has used it in very graceful ways, really integrated into psychotherapy as opposed to just an adjunctive technique um that is added on to therapy so we really use it in the body of therapy.
0: Do you happen to do you happen to know the names of those two books?
1: I should, shouldn't I? One I think is called the Handbook of Body Psychotherapy and Halko Weiss is the editor. And the other one, I wish I had a copy here. I'm I'm an author in both of them, so I you'd think I would know, but um I can
0: or if, or if you don't know the title of the second one, who would be the main author?
1: Uh, that, Halko is also the main editor there. So it has uh, Hakomi uh, people from all over the world in it. And, um, but Halko and uh, Weiss, Johansson, and Manda are the three editors there.
0: So if people were doing a Google search, what would be the main name they would use? Um, I would do
1: just Hakomi. Hakomi. Um, I'm actually looking as I'm talking here. Let me just tell you. Here we go. Hakomi. Hakomi mindfulness centered somatic psychotherapy: a comprehensive guide to theory and practice. W. W. Norton. Hakomi mindfulness centered somatic psychotherapy.
0: That's one of the books. Yeah. And then my
1: book is a good one, but mine's about couples therapy, experiential psychotherapy with couples.
0: But what was the other book that you were thinking of before? um,
1: I think it's called The Handbook of Body Psychotherapy. Okay. Handbook of Body body Psychotherapy and Somatic Psychotherapy. All right. Um, And then there's another one called Grace Unfolding, which is more of a Taoist poetic version of this. And then there's a book by Ron called uh, Body-Oriented Psychotherapy, The Hakomi Method.
0: Okay. And uh, what's on the cutting edge for you personally these days? Well, for me,
1: it's, a lot of it is is things that are happening in China. Um, I've been very interested in, a hybrid model of Hakomi mindfulness and coaching um, because I think psychotherapy is not so accessible to lots of people um, particularly in Asia partly because of um, psychotherapy's uh, inclination to pathologize and partly because of its cost and so I've been uh, working on a model that incorporates kind of the best of coaching um, and the best of mindfulness-oriented psychotherapy in a Hakomi way, and so, um, so it's basically it's I'm calling it a mindful coaching method, and um, so I have I have the curriculum close enough, so I'm going to beta test it on some unsuspecting people soon um, to see how it works, and but I, s- I see a lot of hope for it that it could be have more depth than coaching models often have and more linearity than psychotherapy often has. Um, And it's based on a set of skills. It's based on a premise, which I'm in the beginnings of a research project um, on. And this research project will be multinational. There's a university here in the U.S uh, university, uh, uh, Beijing normal university is interested in participating and there's some other entities also, um, where we're looking for is maybe happiness is a set of skills or abilities rather than just a state. And if we isolate, what are the skills you would need to be happy? Um, and then train people in those, then we may be ahead of the game. And so there, I'm, I've started a list of skills. I'm, I'm up to 65 now, but I, I want to go further and then I want to distill them down. But there's skills, you know, there's some of these skills have been tested and they correlate to happiness. So the first part of it is correlation. Like does compassion, learning how to be compassionate, um, make you happier? Does mindfulness make you happier? And maybe it's the word is satisfaction, life satisfaction or contentment. And what are the skills that bring more contentment into your life? But I think there are other ones that are more, that haven't been tested that are less obvious, like uh, the ability to, uh, to tolerate uncertainty, like um, listening skills, I think, are more obvious, uh, the skills of, of self-disclosure, um, uh, ability to tolerate mistakes and to make mistakes. Um, curiosity, things like that. So that, anyway, I have a list of long, long list of these. So we're we're going to test to see if there's a correlation between these skills and happiness, and then do the a second part where we'll test, we'll train people in those skills, and then see if they actually get better at them and if they're happier. So um, and right now it's it's tentatively called the Happiness Skills Index Project. And that would be the underlying basis of a a mindfulness coaching method model. So I'm I'm putting a lot of attention to that, and I'm also kind of involved in some projects in China um, that involve mindfulness and ecotherapy, which just really um, floats my boat, Um, restoring people's uh, relationship with nature. And um, that is very exciting to me. And there's, there's a place that has tremendous heart in southern Yunnan, that uh, wants to develop these programs there, which there are rhinoceros and pandas and long-fingered monkeys and jungle. And, um, and then we're working on uh, programming of mindfulness-type workshops um, there that help people um, develop internally and also uh, reconstitute our relationship with uh, the natural world. And so that's very exciting to me kind of place of great heart.
0: Well, Rob, I really, really appreciate our conversation today and who you are and what you're up to and what you're doing in the world. And I'm really glad that we got to know each other better and that our, my listeners also have a chance to get to know you better and get introduced to Hakomi. Uh, how can people connect with you and how can people find more out, find out more about Hakomi or find a, a qualified Hakomi therapist.
1: Um, there are a few ways. My own website is robfishermft.com, which you mentioned before. If, if you're in the Bay Area, though, and you want to do Hakomi training, uh, you could go to Hakomi CA, as in California org and all of our training programs are on there. And if you're somewhere else in the world, um, you can go to hakomiinstitute.com, and you'll come up with their uh, training programs. Uh, you know, in many countries around the world, and as well as practitioners. If somebody wanted to do therapy, um, and if you wanted to go and do some ecotherapy in China, you can look up. Pu'er Forest Park P U E R but the pro, we're not ready to do the programs yet but it sounds like uh there'll be a lot of fun over there.
0: Now how about people that would like to access as much source material as they can from Ron Kurtz where is the best place to go for that?
1: Well there are you know his books you could you know go to Amazon look up his books uh, you know under Ron Kurtz K U R T Z but also, there's a there's a Hakomi forum which is uh, you can they're archived. It comes out every year, so there are quite a few editions, and they're all archived and they're free. Um, so if somebody wants to read about it, uh, you can look up Hakomi forum, and then you can you can get to the archives. And there are a lot of on the other sites I just mentioned. There are a lot of uh, you know there are links for readings, um, which will list the forum and lots of articles by me. (laughs) Um, So that would be another place people go
0: for more readings. Rob, thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to another edition of Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. I'm your host, Dr. David, the Cutting Edge Doc. And here on Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul, we do in-depth interviews with individuals that are doing cutting-edge work in the areas of healing, spirituality, and transformation – Today, we've been speaking with Rob Fisher, who is a certified Hakomi therapist and trainer, as well as an author who is continuing to explore his own cutting edge as well in very exciting ways. And so thank you so much for listening. If you find the work here that we're doing valuable and you'd like to support it, This is non-commercial podcasting, so you can support us in a couple of ways. One is you can go over to iTunes and give our show a five-star rating, and also if you are on our own site at cuttingedgedoc.com, that's cuttingedgedoc.com, there's a donate button if you are able to and you would like to support the work financially, and you can also... in communication with me through that site there's also a way to get on our mailing list or to send me a communication so with that we'll close with love and peace bye for now thank you for joining us for today's episode of freeing the body freeing the soul to access all episodes including show notes